told of a man on the day he retired was walking home from work and he passed this antique store and this guy had been a bachelor his whole life had lived a, a pretty meager lifestyle and had never really splurged on anything before and as he walked by the store he saw this beautiful antique vase in the window and for whatever reason he was drawn to this vase and so <clears throat> excuse me he went into the store and he inquired of it and the vase was an astronomical amount of money <laughs> like way more money than this guy had spent on anything in his entire life but he just couldn't get away from him and he thought to himself you know what I I'm gonna buy this vase. I've never bought anything for myself like this. It was kind of a retirement gift. And so he bought this gorgeous antique vase and he brought it home and he put it on the counter of his one bedroom house. And he looked at it and he said, you know, it is beautiful, but boy, there is no place to put it. Like I can't just sit something like this on the counter. And so he went and, and bought this, this mantle. It was handmade carved oak mantle, this beautiful piece of wood and he put that on the wall and he set the vase on it and he thought now that that is a place that's worthy of displaying this in my house and but as soon as he put the mantle up he realized boy the walls in my house are pretty awful so he went back to the hardware store and he bought gallons of paint and he repainted his whole house and he thought now this is starting to look worthy of the base but as soon as he painted the whole house he went no now my carpet doesn't match so he put all new car, you see where this is going, he put all new carpet in the house, and as soon as the carpet was laid, he goes, this is now a beautiful place for this vase, but boy, my furniture is terrible. So he went and bought new furniture, and eventually he renovated his entire house, all because of this vase that had entered his home. And, and you know, I think that happens more than we would think. We've experienced that before, right? Like, you, you repaint the house, and then go, well, now I need new furniture, you get new furniture, well, now I need new carpet. You get new carpet, and you're like, now I need a new husband, and things like that, right? <laughs> My wife will amen that in the second service. And, but it's proven true in life. Certain things, when they enter your home, kind of make you change everything around it. It's true in life. Sometimes certain people enter the room, and it changes how you live, right? Like, I'm reminded of, I had a roommate in college. His name was Scott, and I still have no idea why he would do this, but Scott would be talking to you like a normal person, and then if a girl entered the room, he'd drop his voice like three octaves. Like, he'd be like, hey, how are you? We're like, good, good. And then a girl would walk by, he's like, hello, I'm Scott. And like, it never worked, just for the record, he's still single. And, uh, <laughs> but, but when people entered the room, it would change. And, and sometimes that's a good thing. Like, I used to tell high school guys, when I was doing youth ministry, we, we'd have these conversations about like, what you should watch and what you shouldn't watch. And we used to use the phrase, if you wouldn't watch it with your grandma in the room, you probably shouldn't watch it at all. Now, if you have my grandma, that makes it worse than what you were watching before. But, but it's true. Sometimes certain things, when they come into your life, they dictate that you have to change everything around you. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 today. And, and Peter has just got done talking about how individual lives, people who are individually following God, are to be living a holy life. Peter's just got done talking about how the individual follower of Jesus should live, and now he's going to turn to the church collectively. And he's going to define the church collectively as a temple. But before we do that, we have to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul talks about this idea of the church as a temple as well. In 1 Corinthians 6, 
verses 19 through 20, Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And Paul, in this passage, is talking about you and me as individual believers in Jesus, That when you and I give our life to Jesus, when we surrender to Jesus, Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit indwells us, that the Holy Spirit comes to live in us when we give our life to Jesus. Essentially, the Holy Spirit is the vase on the mantle of your heart and mine. Now, that certainly applies to the church as a whole, because as we talked about last week, each of us individually make up the church body. But Peter, in chapter 2, we're going to read the first 10 verses, talks about the church being a temple, and what Peter is talking about is the church collectively. Paul's talking about each, you and I individually, and Peter is talking about the church collectively when it gathers together in any form, in any fashion, in any moment. And this is what Peter says. He says, put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy, all slander, He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For it says in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, he's talking about Jesus, has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, people who do not know him, stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, he's talking about the church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Peter says, once you, the church, were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. And Peter tells us this morning that the church collectively is to be defined as a temple. Now what does that mean? Well, I think this morning we have to take Paul's teaching in one hand, how each of us individually is being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we have to take Peter's teaching in the other hand, that collectively the church is to be the new temple of God, and we have to put them together. And because of what Peter says in this chapter, in this section, Peter tells us that the Holy Spirit now lives in us, like Paul told us. And that means that when we're together in any context as the church, the Holy Spirit is there, and that should change the way we live. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church should change everything around it. It's the vase on the mantle of your heart. But what does it mean to be the temple of God? Well, we have to go back and look at what the temple always was for the people of God. And in the Old Testament, we see that the temple is where people encountered God. The temple is where people encountered God. It's the place where God promised to meet his people. 
Now, according to Peter, people should encounter God anytime they encounter the church. Peter tells us that God no longer dwells just in man-made buildings. God now dwells in Christ-redeemed people. And so Peter tells us this morning that the church defined as a temple should be a place where people encounter the living God. Think about that for a moment. Think about the truth that he says there. Think about the magnitude of what, what Peter is saying. Peter says that when we gather in any form, in any fashion, God is there. Think about that this morning. The creator of the universe, the author of life, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, he is present right now in this room. He's present. And we didn't have to conjure up God's presence this morning. We, we didn't have to sit on the outside of the temple and let somebody else go into God's presence. We didn't have to, to come up with some kind of magic trick. We didn't have to beg God to be here. We didn't have to travel across the world to be in the presence of an almighty and holy God. That's an incredible truth this morning that we can't, we can't miss. The creator of the world is present in the body of Christ, in the temple of God. And Peter says that as the church, we should long for God. That the church should be a place where we come and we taste and see that the Lord is good. In Psalm 34, that's what Peter's referencing, the writer says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And part of what Peter is talking about is the presence of God, but part of what Peter is talking about is the word of God. That the church should be a place where when we come, we encounter God's word and we're changed because God's word gives life. God's word is life. God's word nourishes our life. Peter says that God's word is like mother's milk to a newborn baby. Psalm 119, the writer said, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. In John 14, Jesus said, If anybody loves me, he said he will keep my word and my father will love him. And he will come to him and he will make our home with him. The church defined as a temple is supposed to be a place where people encounter the living God and that's what we're known for. The church is to be known as a place where people come into the presence and encounter the creator of the world. Lee Iacocca, there's a story told, if you don't know who Lee Iacocca is, he's the guy that founded Chrysler. And there was a day where a man ran into Lee Iacocca in an elevator. And he looked at him and he said, you're Lee Iacocca. And he says, yep, guilty. And he says, man, Mr. Iacocca, I love your commercials. <laughs> like, I just love them. Your commercials are the best ones on TV. Every time they come on, my family loves them. We laugh. They're so good. Like, you guys are just putting out the best commercials. And to that compliment, Mr. Iacocca looked at him and he said, to be honest with you, I really don't care what you think of my commercials. What I want to know is what are you driving? Church, I think sometimes we get concerned about being known for the commercial. Oh man, if people could just know how, how good this program is at our church. Or boy, if, if our music was just so good that people would know, or if the preaching was so good that people would know, or if, if this was so good or that was so good, and yet Peter tells us the church should be known for God. Like, I don't really care what people think about our commercial. <laughs> what I want to know is who do they serve? 
And who have they surrendered to? If you love our worship, if you like the preaching, if you're enamored with our children's program, that's great. But what I really want to know is, are you surrendered to Jesus? And so this morning, we're going to do something different in the sermon. Um, We're going to do something that's outside of my comfort zone (laughs) and maybe some of yours. But if this is supposed to be the place where we encounter God, then I want to pause throughout the sermon a couple times and give us an opportunity to do that. And so this morning, under the umbrella that the temple is the place we encounter God, I want to give you just a minute to come before God in prayer. And so I'm going to pause right here in the sermon, and I'm going to invite you to just, however you need to, bow your head, raise your head, get on your knees, whatever you need to do, just recognize that you're in the presence of the living God. And invite the Holy Spirit who lives in you to speak to you this morning, not because of what I'm preaching, not because of what we sing, but simply for the fact that you are in the presence of God. And it is the Holy Spirit who will change you and me. And so let's pause this morning and take a minute just to recognize that God is here and to invite God to convict us how he leads. Let's, let's go to him in prayer. Okay. It's going to be a little outside your comfort zone this morning. Mine too. So if you feel uncomfortable, good. So do I. (laughs) And so, but that's where we're supposed to be, right? Like when we come to church or when we gather as a church, whether it's in this building or outside, what should stick with us is not what's preached necessarily. What should stick with us is not how good the communication was or how good the singing was. What should stick with us is that the presence of God is what we encountered. Now, hopefully the sermon helps with that. (laughs) Hopefully the music helps with that. Hopefully communion helps with that. But the reality is anything that you walk away from on a Sunday morning that's good came from God and encountering his presence. The temple is where people encountered God. Well, the temple also is the place where sacrifice was offered. It's where sacrifices are. Peter tells us that you and I as the church are being built into what he calls a holy priesthood. And he says that we're being built into that so that we can offer spiritual sacrifices. And Paul jumps on that in Romans 12, and Paul says that sacrifice that you and I now offer is no longer bulls and goats and pigeons and all that stuff. We don't have to do that anymore because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. But Paul says in Romans 12 that when we gather together as the church, the new temple of God, what we're offering is our lives. Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies or your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual act of worship. Paul says, don't be conformed, don't be like the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you can discern what the will of God is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And what Peter tells us is the temple of God 
is where sacrifice is offered. And what that means for us in the New Testament since Jesus has come is that you and I are the living sacrifice to God every time we gather. That the church is to be a place that when we gather, we give everything we have to God for his glory. That's what we talked about last week. That every single one of us is a part of the body of Christ, surrendered to Jesus to be moved by the Holy Spirit. Well, the temple also is a place where praise was lifted up to God. This is my favorite thing that Peter says in this passage. I love the wording that he uses. Peter tells us that we are God's people so that, I love this phrase, that we can proclaim the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness. I love that phrase that Peter tells us when the church gathers together, we should proclaim the excellencies of a God who called us out of darkness into light. That the church is to be a place where we make known that we were once a people destined to die. We were once a people in the depths of sin. But when we gather together, we proclaim how great God is because he is the God who lifted us out of that into light. Hebrews 13 says it this way. The writer says, through Jesus, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, let's offer him the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The church, defined as the temple of God, is supposed to be a place that when we gather, we proclaim how good God is, and we proclaim who he is and what he's done to rescue us from darkness. So this morning, we're going to pause one more time. And what I want you to do this morning is I want you to turn to your neighbor or somebody around you, and I'm going to give you just one minute, and I want you to share something about God that you're thankful for. I want to give you a minute to just simply verbalize the excellencies of God who has called you out of darkness. Okay? Go. All right, good. Did you kind of feel like it's like the teacher let you talk in class? Like, <laughs> you felt like you're going to get, some of you are going to get detention? Yeah, it's weird. But this is supposed to be the place that we do that. Like, one of the things I hope we're learning, at least I am, in this series on how the Bible defines us as a church, like, I hope we're learning that the church is so much more than what goes on up here. And what, what, what I think Peter is challenging us this morning I think he's challenging our thinking when we think about the church as a temple, is this idea that when Jesus came, came, he challenged the thinking of what a temple was. See, before Jesus came, there was only one or a few people that could even enter the temple. There was only one or a few people who could come into the presence of God. And most of us would have been sitting on the outside, never getting the opportunity to come before God. And then Jesus came and he tore down the curtain and he made the way so that we could all with confidence come before God. And it changed how people thought. And part of me thinks we need to be refreshed in that this morning, that we have to redefine what the church is, not by what we want or what we're used to or what we think, but by what Scripture says. 
And the reality is, Scripture says the church defined as a temple is a place where we come together. And together we proclaim the excellencies of a God who called us out of darkness. And the last thing I would say this morning is this, that the temple is a place where forgiveness and restoration occurs. Now in the Old Testament, that meant a sacrifice. It meant that the priest would take an animal, would kill it, would sprinkle the blood on the people, and they would be forgiven of the sins that they'd committed and restored into a right relationship with God. In fact, the, the Bible is pretty clear that in the Old Testament, the priests were, were, were the people who were to stand before God, and then the priests would leave God's presence, and the priests would be changed, and then they would pronounce blessings over everybody outside God's presence. That's what would happen. The priests would come into the presence of God, they would leave changed by the presence of God, and then they would proclaim blessing, forgiveness, and restoration over the people of God. And while we don't do that today, we don't, I don't have to go make a sacrifice for you. Jesus has already done that. And Jesus has made it so that we can all come into the presence of God. It's not just one person anymore. The reality is, though, it's still in some ways supposed to be the same. That when the church gathers together, we should come into the presence of God. We should leave changed by the presence of God, and we should pronounce blessing over all the people who are outside God's presence in the world. That when the church gathers together, we should leave knowing that because of Jesus, we are forgiven and we are restored. And we should leave proclaiming that truth to anybody who is not. This is the place where no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, that you can be restored to who you were created to be. The church is always, first and foremost, a place of forgiveness and restoration. The church should be a place that everybody who thinks they are beyond hope finds hope. The church should be a place that everybody who thinks they can't be forgiven finds forgiveness. The church should be a place that everybody who thinks their life cannot be restored finds restoration. The church should be a place that everybody who thinks they're beyond redemption discovers they can be redeemed. See, when Jesus was on earth, he declared that he was the temple. In fact, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. And Jesus was speaking about his body, but what he was really telling them was that now the temple had become personal, that the building that God dwelled in now became intimate. He was speaking about his own body, but Jesus was saying that now I'm the place where God will meet his people. Jesus was saying, now I'm the place where God will be displayed to the world, and Jesus was the place where forgiveness and restoration could be found, known, and available. And then Jesus says, now he's the cornerstone. That's what Peter says, that that Jesus who came to earth, God in the flesh, is now the cornerstone of the church, the new temple for the people of God. See, followers of Jesus, you and me, we're living stones in the building of God. 
I, I love that phrase that Peter uses. We're living stones in the temple of God. What he means is, is every time someone surrenders to Jesus, it, it's like God takes a stone and it's like he takes us and he quarries us, like he, he mines us out of the pit of sin and he cements us by his grace into the temple of God. One commentator says it this way, he said, Jesus is the temple in one sense, but, but Jesus is also the foundation of God's temple in another in, in other words, Jesus is the foundation stone that God has laid. He's God's chosen instrument through whom the restoration of all people and the rebuilding of a new temple will be made from living stones. That's followers of Jesus. That's how that will take place, that you and I are the living stones built on the cornerstone of the new temple, the place where people find restoration and forgiveness. See, see, God has been building a new temple ever since Jesus rose from the dead. He's been building a new temple on a cornerstone of Jesus, and the church collectively is made for Jesus. The church as a temple is made specifically to make Jesus known to the world. That's why in Hebrews 10, the writer says that we have confidence now. We can enter into the most holy places because of the blood of Jesus. The writer says we have a new and living way that Jesus opened up to us through the curtain, through his flesh. And since we have this great priest, Jesus, who is over the house of God, now we can draw near with a true heart. We can have full assurance of faith with our hearts because they've been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies have been washed with pure water so we can hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And why can we do that? Because he who promised us this is faithful. He's the cornerstone. And because of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, we should consider how to stir up each other in love and good works. We should not neglect meeting together as the church, as some are in the habit of doing. But we should encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. As the band comes to lead us this morning, there's a, there's a documentary uh, years ago by a guy named Bill Moyers that he produced for PBS, and it was on the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And, and I don't know if you know the story of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, but John Newton at one point in his life was a violent slave trader. And, and John Newton experienced the love of God during a storm on his merchant ship. The storm was so bad that it nearly capsized Newton's ship, and he was barely saved, but he was rescued, and his whole crew was, and this caused Newton to slowly turn his life back to God. And, and out of that, Newton joined a man named William Wilberforce to fight to end slavery in our country, and God completely changed his heart, and Newton, out of that, wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. Now, this documentary that was on PBS features a 1988 concert that took place at Wembley Stadium in England. And it was to raise money, this concert was, for Nelson Mandela and his fight against the apartheid in South Africa. And several million people watched this conference online or on TV all around the world, and there was thousands more who were there in person. And this concert had 
every big name band you could think of. It had U2 was there and the Rolling Stones and they worked the crowd into a frenzy and according to the documentary, by the time some of you 80s guys like me, by the time Guns N' Roses took the stage, <laughs> the scene had turned dangerously chaotic, they said. In fact, they said most people in attendance were either drunk, high, or some combination of both. And then at the end of the night, a woman by the name of Jessie Norman, a famous African-American opera singer, stepped onto the stage. No band, no music, no accompaniment. And she stepped up to the microphone and she began to sing Amazing Grace. And if you watch the documentary, she, used, she began to sing those words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And, and by the end of the second verse, kind of a solemn silence had actually fallen over the previously rowdy crowd. By the end of the third verse, thousands of people were singing with her. It's as if the crowd realized the power of a song when sung in public and were taken out of their drunken stupor. By the end of the song, an entire stadium of people were singing about what the world really needs and what the world really lacks. Some would say by the end of the song, they went to church. As we sing this song this morning, we're going to sing a different song called Cornerstone. A reminder that because of the grace of Jesus, he is the cornerstone of everything our church is going to be built on. And this morning, I invite you to come to church. I invite you to come to a place, to come to a person, and to realize what you and the world needs is grace. To realize that the only thing that will take us out of the drunken stupor of sin is an amazing grace that would save a wretch like you and me. So I invite you as we lead into this song to spend maybe a minute or maybe more in confession before Jesus this morning. To admit to Jesus the things in your life that desperately need his grace and forgiveness. And then as you feel led, you can stand and join us in singing this truth of Jesus, the cornerstone of your life and mine individually, and the cornerstone of the new temple, the church collectively. We invite you to go before God this morning to find restoration and hope in Jesus and for us to worship together the excellencies of a Savior who called us out of darkness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's sing.